My name is Aubrey, if we haven't met before, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you brought a copy of the Bible, find our gospel reading that Eric just read to us, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. For several weeks now, we've been going, uh, giving our attention, going through some of the parables that Jesus told that are recorded in the gospel of Luke. Um, And here's, I think, a really important thing to have in our minds this morning. When Jesus used a parable, it was normally because they weren't getting what he was trying to say. Um, And so a parable was like a a teaching technique that he's using to, to try to get through. Have you ever been talking to somebody and they're just stuck? And you're saying one thing, and they think you're saying another thing, and you're just trying and trying. That's exactly what's going on with these parables. Jesus is trying to to help his disciples here see something that they've just, they're not getting. All right, so notice how this goes. Luke chapter 18, the, the parable starts in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, this sounds rather straightforward. The problem is uh, we're 2,000 years removed from this culture and this time period. And so there's a couple of things that you need to think about in the opposite way than our culture teaches us to think about. One of those is this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. In the English-speaking world here in the West, when we use the word prayer in this kind of sentence, we typically are talking about private prayer. And we use worship to talk about a corporate thing. So, for example, um, it, well, it's the opposite in the Semitic-speaking languages. So, for example, in Aramaic or Hebrew or Syriac or Arabic, to pray is used for both things. So on Sunday, a Christian in the Arab world still today would say to his friend, I'm going to pray. In the same sentence, you would have said, I'm going to worship. In fact, our Arabic-speaking congregation that meets on Sunday afternoons at 3 o'clock, Arabic-speaking refugees primarily from Sudan, they will often say to me, Aubrey, I liked praying in your church today. Or, Aubrey, I'm going to pray with you today. And I think, oh, we're going to get together and like, he's going to pray for me. And I'm, but they use the word prayer the way we use the word worship. I'm going to prayer or I prayed with you. So this is Arabic. This is, a, this is this part of the world where Jesus told this story. They were using it that other way. So two men went up into the temple to pray means they went to church. Okay. So two cats go to church. Now. What kind of church service were they going to? What was happening at this service? Well, during this day and age, um, every day they would have two worship services in the temple. One would be at dawn and the other would be at three o'clock. And they were atonement services. They were services where the church, the people who were going to worship, would gather outside the sanctuary the, the priest would come out to, there was a large altar outside of the sanctuary. The priest would go out to it and he would sacrifice a lamb 
for the sins of Israel. And he would, there'd be this ritual and they would conclude by sprinkling the blood of that lamb on the altar. There would be music. Typically it was trumpets and cymbals and they would read a psalm. And then the priest leading the service would come down from the altar, would go into the sanctuary. The whole congregation stays outside and he would go into the sanctuary and offer incense. And at that point, when the, when the officiating priest has disappeared into the sanctuary, the worshipers outside would have the prayers of the people. So it's very similar to our service. They had music, they had scripture, they had a meal, and they had prayers of the people. And during that time, their prayers of the people, similar to ours. They were verbal, they were out loud. Now, during the prayer time, notice what happens to these two men. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, here's an odd thing that's happened. The odd thing is that he's standing by himself. Now, right now, my wife, she's very shy. She wouldn't want you all to turn back there and look at her, but that's her. Now, it's obvious why Janelle is standing by herself, right? Because she wants a baby, and Laura needs somebody to hold her baby, and so Janelle is rocking. Now, that's clear, right? But what if Nick didn't have a baby, and he just got up and went back in the corner and stood like this? We would all be looking at Nick and thinking, what's the deal with that dude? Why is he standing over there all by himself? That's not normal. So when you read this, he stood by himself, you're supposed to think, what's going on with that dude? You don't know what's going on. And Jesus doesn't tell you. You're supposed to read between the lines and kind of figure it out. And then he prays his out loud prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, here's another problem we have. We all know the end of the story. So we hear that prayer and we think it's disgusting. It's actually a really good prayer. Look what he says. God, I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. Now, for those of you who are not extortioners, <laughs> should you be grateful that you're not an extortioner? Like, is that, at, should you feel good that, you know what? <laughs> Whatever circumstances of life create extortioner, I haven't, I'm not one. Like, that's a good thing to... James says every good gift, the gift of not being an extortioner comes from God. Next, he says, I thank you that I'm not unjust. Don't you hate injustice? Aren't you glad that you do not have a trail of victims behind you that you have treated unjustly? That is a good thing to be thankful for. I'm, I, I thank you, God, that I'm not an adulterer. If, right now, if I asked everybody in the room who's not an adulterer to raise their hand, if they're thankful, do you, do, this is good. If you're not an adulterer, that's a good thing. And it's good to be grateful to God that you've not, I mean, think of all the sins you have committed, right? Aren't you grateful that you haven't committed everyone? that there are sins you've not committed. He's grateful for this. Or even like this tax collector. Now here again, we really are tripped up by our culture. This tax collector was a dirty, rotten scoundrel. He was a jerk. Here's what it took to be a tax collector. 
the Jews had been captured by Romans. You had to go to the Romans and make a deal. I know where my neighbor keeps his money. And I know how much my cousin makes. And I'm aware of the, of the, of the income of my village that raised me. And if, if you'll let me, I'll collect the taxes. And then the way he makes his salary is he collects more taxes than he has to collect. That's the way he makes his living. He adds a little something on the top. I, I, I don't think it's really normal for us to, I mean, some of you might feel deeply about taxes and tax collectors, but unless you're like a real libertarian, just try to put yourself in the libertarian shoes for a minute. Now, this is way worse than that. This would be like if a Ukrainian this morning went to a Russian and said, I, when this settles, I know how much people in my family make. I can make sure you get the right amount of tax from them. This guy is a traitor. He is vile and he is disgusting. I think really the only way you can feel about this tax collector, the way the people listening to the story would have felt, is if you could imagine somebody who abuses people, because that's what he does. He uses his power and he gets rich off of other people's harm. I think the closest analogy in our culture is a human trafficker. Somebody who abuses others and to their detriment grows wealthy out of it. This is a pimp. This is an abuser. It is legitimate to be thankful that the circumstances of life that led that man to do that and to live that life for you to be thankful that you're not a pimp, that you're not destroying people's lives to your own. And, and the people hearing this prayer would not have felt about the prayer that it was arrogant. They would have felt, man, this is a good man. And he has much to be thankful for. And look at the next line. It says, I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, here again, this is good. All over the Bible, we're, we're taught about fasting. In fact, we've just asked our entire church to fast this in a couple of days on Ash Wednesday, Wednesday of this week. Fasting is a good spiritual discipline. Now, God commanded his people to fast one day a year. That doesn't mean if you fast, you shouldn't fast more than that. It's just, no, you have to fast on this day. But, but Jesus himself taught us that fasting is good. Jesus himself pulled away and fasted like we're taught throughout the Bible. Fasting, one of the reasons for it is to prepare yourself for a season of unique service to God. All of us at some point in our life should do that. All of us at some point in our life should see something coming down the pike that we want to get ready for it. And we want to model our life after Jesus and prepare ourselves for a season of unique service to our king through the preparation of fasting. We also see that Jesus pulled aside when he really needed to make careful decisions and he needed vocational discernment. Vocational discernment is the hardest discernment there is. Figuring out who you are 
and what you were made to do and how you should contribute to this world, it is so difficult. It drives college graduates into a tizzy. It produces the midlife crisis. It's huge. And one of the techniques God gave us for dealing with the difficulty of vocational discernment is fasting. And we see Jesus using that technique. We also see in the Bible that fasting is a way that you you repent or you get yourself in a posture to repent. Look, this guy fasts. And, and he's not doing it to earn God's favor. There is nothing in the passage, there's nothing in the New Testament to tell us that the Jewish people or this guy, that he was doing this stuff to somehow build up the moral credit it takes for God to like him. Don't think of him that way. If you think of him that way, you are letting yourself off the hook. Because what you're doing is you're, this guy is not bad, he's good. And these things he's thankful for are good. And these things he do, look, the Jewish people had to fast once a year. The Pharisees practiced fasting 12 times a year, 12 days a year. This guy fasts twice a week, so like over 100 days a year. My dad, for years of my life, fasted every Wednesday, and once a year he would fast for 40 days. I never looked back at my dad and thought, he's trying to earn God's favor. I saw the opposite. I was deeply impressed by this man. My wife fasts 40 days at a time. That's impressive to me. I don't think that Janelle is trying to earn God's favor. You need to read this in the same way that that you would think about these kind of people. And he tithes. He says, "I I give a tithe of all that I get. In the Old Testament, you, were, you had to tithe what you produced, your kind of what you earned. But that left a lot of complicated areas. I mean, some of you have really complicated incomes. You've talked to me about like, what do I, t-? my income is super easy. It says it right on my paycheck, right? There's no like putting stuff into the assets of a company. And some of you have all these complicating factors. This guy lived in the same kind of culture where tithing is not always super simple. And there were lots of debates about do you tithe on this kind of thing or that kind of thing. This guy cut right through all the debates. He tithed on everything he acquired. That means everything he earned. And when he went to a marketplace and bought something, if he got a bolt of cloth or if he bought produce, he would give 10% of it because he was just like, look, I'm not fiddling around with all this argument about what I shouldn't tithe and... Maybe this guy didn't, he just did it all. And again, do not think he's doing it to earn God's favor. In the same way that you have friends who their deep commitment to being pure means they don't watch some of the shows you watch. It's not like they're trying to earn God's favor. They're just like, look, I'm drawing the line here and I don't have to debate some of the stuff you have to sit around debating. This man is impressive. He's good. He He is offering himself in in the way that we raise our children to live their lives. Now, this other guy, this tax collector, he is bad. He is greedy. He is an abuser. We think we've got issues with power dynamics in America today. (laughs) He was a tax collector who had a group of Roman soldiers behind him. And he could set your taxes at whatever he wanted to. This is a bad man who's gotten rich off of taking advantage of others and ruining their lives. 
Now let's listen to how he prays. But the tax collector standing far off, right? There's two people standing in the back, right? And they're both standing back there. And you're supposed to say, no, why is he standing back there? What drives him away from the crowd? He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. That's odd. Because in the West, our typical posture of prayer, because Baptists are all over the place, is to bow your heads and close your eyes. Um, that's, our, that's our typical posture in the West. We bow our heads and we close our eyes, and it's a way that Westerners um, show reverence. In this culture, you... Oh, thank you. Thank you, Keith. In this Middle Eastern culture, they had the opposite posture of prayer. They raised their head, they looked up with their eyes. Now, oftentimes you'll see the priests leading our worship services with their hands raised. We're, we're copying that posture. But this guy didn't do that. So everybody else is praying in that way. This guy, see, the, the, the Pharisee wasn't being... That picture on the front of our worship God, that, that's not him being arrogant. That is him praying a good prayer in the right posture. Right. Now, this tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, and you're supposed to, why? And, but he beat his breast. That's really weird, too. I mean, it's as weird for somebody to be beating their breast during the prayers of the people then as it would be if today when we did prayers of the people and there's, I don't know, Zeke is over there doing something like this. We would all think, Wow, he has got a lot of sawdust up in his nostrils. Um, women sometimes would beat their breast at a funeral that was an extreme tragedy. The only time that we find somebody beating their breast here in Scripture is in a couple of chapters at the, at the crucifixion of Jesus. The men and the women beat their breasts. So we're supposed to think whatever is going on with this man... It is as distressing as the crucifixion of God in the flesh. He's that distressed. And notice what he prays. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally, God, make atonement for me. You see, this is an odd word for mercy. It's not the normal word. The normal word for mercy, we sing a song during Lent and Advent, Kyrie eleison, eleison, that word, and then we sing it in Latin, and then we sing it right in um, English, Lord have mercy. That's the normal word for mercy, eleo, okay? The word he uses here is another word for mercy whose predominant secondary meaning is give me mercy through atonement. Now, the reason this is a big deal is just a few verses later, down in verse 38, Jesus is walking down the road, and there's a blind man, and the blind man calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He uses the normal word. Luke is a great writer. He's setting us up to pay attention. Why does he use this more rare word here? Well, read between the lines. Think about this. Where is this happening? It's happening at a worship service. What worship service is it happening at? The atonement service. So both the Pharisee and the tax collector are standing in front of the great high altar on which the lamb without blemish has just been sacrificed for the sins of Israel. 
The tax collector stands far off, apart from the other worshipers gathered around the altar. He watches the lamb be sacrificed. He listens to the sounds of the trumpet and the great clashing of the cymbals. He hears the reading of the psalm. He watches the blood splattered on the sides of the altar. He sees the priests disappear into the temple to offer incense to God. And shortly afterwards, this priest reappears announcing that the sacrifice has been accepted. Israel's sins have been washed away through the atoning sacrifice of the lamb. The trumpets blow again. The incense wafts to heaven. The great choir sing and the, and the tax collector in the midst of all this distraught, beating his chest says, Lord, what about me? Have mercy on me. I don't deserve what, it, what, it, what you have to do for everybody else. What about me? Because you know what? He says, have mercy on me. Literally, most Bibles translate the next phrase, a sinner. Literally, it's the sinner. Don't know why. I have, two, I have two theories. Take them for what they're worth. One is there's two cats standing in the back of the room. And he's just heard one of them pray, and he agrees with it. Of these two guys, it's true. I'm the sinner. I mean, think of the rapist. Think of the human trafficker. Think of him coming into our worship service. Or think of yourself, whatever dark deeds you've done. Have you ever been to a worship service where you see everybody going through this thing and you, whether you go back and move yourself physically or just you're, you're just feeling you're apart from the room and, and that's him. He's saying, have mercy. I'm the sinner here. Out of everybody here, I'm the sinner. And that's the second option. A second option is the comforting words that, that Keith read to us earlier. Here's a trustworthy and true statement that Christ came to die for sinners of whom I am the foremost. It could be, I think, that he's saying not just that of these two I'm a sinner. He's saying of all the people in this village, I'm the worst. There are people up here worshiping. I've ruined their lives and I've lived off of it, right? This is the father who's a child abuser saying, I've ruined my children's lives. And, and he cries out, make atonement. You're taking care of the whole nation, but will you take care of me? And he's so driven down into this, he's beating his chest. Now, if Jesus had told the story and used a child abuser and the very best person you know, and then at the end of the story, he says, I tell you, the child abuser went home justified. The shock you would feel is the shock they felt. The word justified, you know what it means? It means he's the one that God declared to be a part of the family of God. He's in Abraham's family. All the promises of Abraham to, that I gave to Abraham for his family, I will give to this man. I will give him forgiveness of sin. 
I will give him the gift of my Holy Spirit. I will give him an inclusion in the inheritance. He will be a co-heir with Christ of the whole world. When God makes the whole world new and gives it over to Christ, he gets to receive that inheritance too. I will give him my spirit. I will give him my comfort. I will seal him with my presence. This is the man who I'm going to make a part of my family. Now, that stinks. See, there are some of you in this room that you, you've done what you were raised, what you were told to do. Your parents introduced you to the ways of God and you've walked in the ways of God. You've actually played the game by the rules. And you really are a good person. And then there's these other scoundrels who ruin people's lives. How in the world do they get in on this? And until you've read it that way, you've let yourself off the hook. See, as long as you're reading the Pharisee as the bad guy, you're missing the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace is that what it takes to come into God's family is to respond to the love of Jesus with an answering love. It's to recognize that God himself took on flesh and walked through the dusty paths of Palestine, giving love and kindness and care and ultimately dying on the cross. Galatians chapter one, verse four, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Galatians chapter two, verse 20, the son of God loved me and gave himself for my sins. Do you hear what's going on there? Paul has learned of Jesus and this amazing self emptying, self-giving love of God in Jesus has called forth from Paul an answering love, an answering loyalty. God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He kept all his promises. He's so faithful. He's so kind. He's so loyal to us. He will be loyal even to the child. This is amazing, isn't it? It is amazing to think that kind of love. God is just love to the core of his being. And when you hear the story of God in Christ, when you hear about his crucifixion, that he died for you, and, and, and when it raises up in you an answering love, an answering allegiance, an answering commitment and faithfulness to God, you too will be justified. See, there's really good news here because I know I've thrown under the bus people in this room. Right? I mean, we, there's as many tax collectors in this room as there are Pharisees. Have you ever stood in this worship service and felt like if they really knew, have you ever felt like you can't raise your head toward God? Look at the mess you've made. This, this, this man went home justified rather than the other. I don't know if there's any more comforting words in scripture. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The problem is not that the Pharisee thought he was earning God's favor. The problem is that he didn't think he needed God's mercy. That's the problem. And you can be really straight-laced 
and have done everything you're supposed to do and realize one day that you don't really think you need God's mercy. And you do. And I do. We need our creator to have mercy on us. And when we, and when we bring that posture to Jesus, that open, humble posture that responds that even though I've done all of this, he loves me. When I respond to that with an answering love, when I respond to his loyalty to me, even though I've been disloyal to him, with an answering loyalty, when I respond to his faithfulness with an answering faithfulness, scandal of all scandals, he'll justify you. He'll let you be in his kingdom, in his family, and you'll get all those benefits, so many benefits. I pray that God's faithfulness and love draws from us an answering love and faithfulness and allegiance. What about you? Have you been justified or have you been made a part of God's family, declared to be in God's family? What a remarkable God. And if you can imagine someone that you don't think should be in the family. Well, we know which one of these guys you are. Let's pray.